hola to our newest and hottest podcast listeners, Gavin Hogan from London, Stephen in Dallas, Texas, Adam in the city that's so nice they named it twice, New York, New York, Graham Cleghorn in Newcastle, UK, and Richard Stewart in the Lake of the Ozarks. If you want to join this elite crew, then you know what to do by now. Simply become a Patreon member by checking out the link in your episode description below and join us on our next group call. So I have a car wish list. And so, you know, no one's going to buy me a car, but I have a place where I can kind of keep track of what I've seen. Maybe your wife might. Uh, well, she's my ex-wife, so she probably won't. <laughs> That's my guess. But, you know, we get along pretty well, so maybe she will. You've got to have limits. It'll just drag on. You'll burn more money. And next thing you know, you'll have a non-sustainable business that took all of your money. I'll tell you this. I've traveled to a lot of places because I love to travel. And there is no country and culture like... Investment banking in general, I actually teach a class on investment banking currently. And this is actually one of the areas I cover for people that are interested in going into iBanking. So if I can't get it launched this way, then there's something wrong here. Did you have any hobbies during the time other than work? So (laughs) that's a really good question. My name is Savendu Pal. I'm the founder, chairman, and CEO of Gift Hero. I'm 49 years old, and I live in the Boston area. Gift Hero is a social gifting platform for individuals and organizations to build, manage, and share lists of products and services they want or need. And we try to make gifting fast, fun, and flexible. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Gift Hero. So it's gifthero.com? That's correct. Okay. You said it sounds like businesses and personal. I mean, can you just give me a little bit more description in case anyone's not on your website and get an idea of what y'all do and how you make money? Yeah, sure. It's a website platform with an app and our users tend to be consumers, but also some nonprofits. On Gift Hero, they're building a list. In the case of users that are consumers, that would be like Christmas, birthday, wedding, baby registries. In the case of nonprofits, we're talking about their donation lists. And they go build a list and they share and manage it with their friends, family, their community, their donor group. The way that Gift Hero makes money is through an affiliate revenue model, which is when someone clicks on something to buy it from the source website, whether it be a retailer, service provider, we make money on that click through on a successful sale of that product or service. And that's the basic business model. I guess the most important question everyone's wondering right now is, can I like make a list for, say, a podcast host who's waiting for his audience to buy him some gifts? Sure, you absolutely can. In fact, we'd love it if you did that. Okay, so that will be in the show notes for everybody. So <laughs> all of you who aren't members can go ahead and support me that way. No, I'm just joking around here. But I guess as far as the gifts that you pick, I mean, it sounds like, okay, that sounds simple. It seems like almost anyone can do it, but I imagine it's a little bit harder than you making it as simple for us to understand here. Sure. From the perspective that for the user, we try to keep it pretty easy, right? You basically need to have just a website address where the item service is being offered and our platform pulls in the picture, the title, the price, and the lister, who is the person creating the list, can add some information in a description box. Our platform is doing that retrieval for the user and we use a couple of different platforms to do that combination of technologies. That way, on a single list of it, like they can add something from Target, from Amazon, from any one of a number of other sites, all in one list, as opposed to having to create a quote unquote wish list at that single provider or retailer. 
Okay. I was really going to ask next if you only had certain gifts for everybody, but it sounds like the cool thing about you is you're integrated on different platforms. So really, it's almost a customer. You're trying to make it easy for them. That's exactly right. Yeah. Then also makes it easier for whoever's buying a gift. That's right. We wanted it to be as flexible as possible for the user and to be used for any basically purpose that they wanted and to be able to add literally anything. I'll give you an example. It's sort of an extreme example. I actually happen to have a wish list on my account where I've added various cars that I've seen in various places, you know, eBay Motors or an auto trader. And I just have to enter the web address that pulls all the information for me. It actually adds, acts as a, almost like a bookmarker from that sense. So I have a car wish list. And so, you know, no one's going to buy me a car, but I have a place where I can kind of keep track of what I've seen. Maybe your wife might. Uh, well, she's my ex-wife, so she probably won't. <laughs> That's my guess. But, you know, we get along pretty well, so maybe she will. I guess she probably had a long wish list too, huh? During the divorce? Uh, yes, very long. The one that I could not accommodate. That's right. So what made you come up with this idea? This is probably back in 2015 and for years before that in my family, you know, I have a brother and my parents and extended family. And there was always sort of this situation around Christmas or birthdays where there's a lot of texting and emailing, calling back and forth. We've got kids in our families. What does everybody want? What's everyone into? Interests change constantly, especially for the younger people in the family. And it's really sort of a messy process. And not only that, when you might tell someone else in the family that, okay, my son wants this, they may kind of get it or have a sense of what it is, but it's not may not be the exact one that they want. And so what happens is when you tag it and put it into a wish list, they can go visit it, visit the wish list, buy the exact item because the URL was added when um, the list was created. And they can also claim that they've bought it so another person doesn't buy it. So what it does is it makes the whole process from beginning to end much more efficient. And you see obviously much higher satisfaction from the recipient. Yeah. Especially kids, like you're saying, they could change every six months of what they wanted. Absolutely. And also, let's just say if they wanted an Xbox, maybe they wanted a black one and you got them a white one and they're whining about that, you know? That's exactly right. Different storage sizes, 500 gigabit or one terabyte drive, Xbox One versus 360. Or one of the places where I observed it got the most complicated was my younger son was really into Lego. The, the permutations of Lego sets and themes are endless. And so to tell my dad, who is now 83, that Devin wanted this specific Lego set of Hogwarts Castle for Christmas and not the little one, but the really big one, <laughs> which my father would happily buy for him. And he knows that it just makes the communication not only more efficient, but just more clear. Right. I'll say like I was the only one in my family. It's like when I make presents or make a list, it still is kind of annoying, especially if you're not just doing off Amazon or something. You know, I could imagine, especially like women who want, especially different Target or whatever else, you know? Exactly. I mean, even on top of that, I feel like I was the only one in my family who would go out of my way to do that to make sure I got the right thing, you know? <laughs> right. So, yep, it's a familiar story. Yeah, for the majority of people where, okay, maybe they have, especially children, you're like, hey, if you want this wish and you want Santa to bring it to you, you better go and go here and gift here and actually make your list for us. That's right. That's exactly right. And we take it a step further in the sense that because it's a social media type platform, you can follow people and build friend relationships with other profiles and you get reminders for various lists that have to do with certain events. For example, my niece is the greatest person in the world, but I always kind of forget her birthday, but I got an email a month ago reminding me that, hey, it's Bianca's birthday next week. Come check out the list. And the, obviously the link to the list is directly in the email reminder. So it keeps you on top of things as well. Wow. Well, that seems like the most important thing that you mentioned there. Absolutely. Yeah. 
yeah, if you get a reminder like that, like you said, even I think my dad honestly forgets when's my birthday is sometimes. So I think it would help him out, right? <laughs> yep. Especially if you got extended family, like you're saying. I mean, you could put it on a calendar, but sometimes you forget and you get busy or whatever. That's right. I could see that that could be a big thing. And you're saying it has a list there so people can go ahead and make sure they don't double buy or something for it. That's right. You just get the email reminder and people will have like 10 lists on their, you know, on their profile. Like I have that car list, but I have a key sort of main core one, which is things I'm interested in. But when you get that email reminder, that email is related to that specific list where the user had put a date on it. And that's when we could advance notice and a link within the email directly to that specific list. And so I'm sure everyone also is wondering, are you paying me to say all these nice things about your website here? I gladly would, Austin, but I am not. <laughs> it just makes sense, you know, honestly. You're not. And I'm asking this for a friend because I think I've seen similar type of list. I don't I imagine there's some competitors. Yes. But some adult stars use this gift hero or other platforms to get lists or to ask their customers or whatnot to buy them. That is absolutely right. Is Gift Hero one of those? Yes. We allow anyone to build a profile, set the privacy however they'd like to. Doesn't matter who you are or what you do. You can add anything you like from any website. We do scan for offensive content across public lists and profiles to make sure that someone doesn't come across something they shouldn't see. But the way that we lean beyond the boundaries of safety for our users is that we want you to be you. And that's what social media is about, is to express yourself and tell people what you're interested in. Like for example, on Facebook, if you share an article, that you'd like people to look at and represents your views. This is a representation of yourself and we don't want to tell you who you are. You know who you are. Right. I agree with you. I mean, as far as the ability to anyone should be able to do what they want. I was just curious because I remember seeing a trend like that, I think like years ago. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting concept where people can just buy them gifts. I think my friend told me about this adult site. I never went to it, but it's just something that I heard, of course. I mean, with those lists, like you're saying, you could maybe even make them private, it sounds like. So that way, maybe it's between the husband and the wife or whatever, you know, whatever they want on there. Exactly. That's right. Privacy is extremely important to us. That took some effort and some iterations to create a simple and elegant solution for people to understand privacy and how they could control it. I mean, that's one of the issues I think with Facebook that at least at a certain point in time, I think they've done better now, but they understand the privacy of what was in your profile to the public, to your friends, to specific people. It was a little bit hard to control and you have to dig pretty deep and unfortunately behooves Facebook for you know, content that's less private because they get to use it to their benefit for activity and usage. But for us, wishlist can be very, very personal. So when it comes to privacy, we spent a lot of time in trying to create a not only effective privacy or effective privacy options for your profile, but to make sure it was easy to understand the privacy as well. All right. Well, yeah, I appreciate you giving us, I guess, a rundown on your business and what you do today. And how old did you say you are today? I'm 49. 49. And so you just started Gift Hero about four or five years ago? It was in 2016, the early part of the year. Yeah. When would you want to reel back for us as the audience to learn from your entrepreneurial journey? So I would say probably back to the beginning because I spent the majority of my career in finance as a consultant or in corporate or executive positions. And one of the things about being an entrepreneur is that there's many rewards to it, which someone or an entrepreneur or someone who wants to be an entrepreneur can reap as a result of pursuing that path. I spent probably before I got to starting Gift Hero, we're talking about 19 years in corporate America. And my thought was that observed a problem in everyday life. If you know the famous investor, Peter Lynch from Fidelity, whose tagline was always invest in what you know. You know, starting a business as an entrepreneur is an investment. 
And I saw something in my everyday life that I thought was a problem that was not addressed adequately. And so I chose to invest in what I observed and what I know. Or what you didn't know because you didn't know what to buy people, right? That's exactly right. That's well said at the end of the day, right? And I found that what I did was I started to work on gift tours for part-time. 2016. I was still doing some consulting work. And I found that you want to do something that you enjoy. Everybody wants to do that. That's the great thing about entrepreneurial pursuits. They have their downsides to them from an income and capital perspective, but you'll find that it's something that you will truly enjoy in your everyday. This was a big change for me. I mean, I did really well from a financial perspective as an executive and as a consultant, but I say I liked it, enjoyed it, but this was truly a very different experience for me. And I had finally found what I wanted to do when I started to do it. And I went to full-time probably, I'd say, eight or nine months after the idea came about and started to work with a few people to get the idea to gel and figure out how we pay for building it out and what the plan was. So I'd say that that's probably where things began, is finding that this is something that you can really enjoy. Hopefully, if it does well, you can make it your life. You're saying that's basically 20 years after corporate finance, basically? Yep. I'm sure there's other people listening right now who could relate. So, I mean, even when you kind of came out of college, are you from the Boston area? I am. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. So during any of those 20 years, did you think you were going to be an entrepreneur or is it like you kept thinking about it, wanting to do it, but then you kind of like, Hey, I'm making enough money. I'd probably stay where I'm at. Actually, probably I would say starting about five or six years before I actually started Gift Hero, I started dabbling in other startups. So, you know, I think the interest was certainly always there, but as expected with any entrepreneurial pursuit because of the risk that comes with it, there's certainly a safety with having a career job and something has to really motivate you to make the jump. Obviously, you know, the average person may have some aversion to risk and it is a, it's a very big risk to take. I think for me, why it worked at that point in time is, you know, I spent 20 years in corporate America. So I had built a pretty good safety buffer financially for myself that I thought to myself, well, to start to dabble for those five, six years before Gift Hero, that I was getting closer to a point in time where I could try and do something full time. I will say those other startups that I sort of dabbled in for the five, six years before Gift Hero, there was several of them. And I think one of the lessons that I certainly learned is that you can try and start something part-time by yourself or with some other people, unless you show a real commitment within yourself. Don't worry about what other people think, but I mean, a real commitment by your own decision-making and your own risk-taking, that real commitment, it's hard to get things off the ground. And so those other startups I was involved in, you know, they would get a little bit of traction, but they involved other people and you have to get that commitment from everyone. You have to have financial commitment and that can be hard to do. And so I think that 2016, I was like, okay, I really want to do this. I would really enjoy this. I can financially do this on my own. I don't need commitment from other people because I'm going to found this company and bring people together. And so it was the right time for me to make that jump. Yeah, well, I appreciate you joining and becoming a Patreon. And yeah, what do you think about that first group call? Oh, I thought it was great. I liked that uh, once everybody kind of warmed up, they all got a little input put in and I felt like it went really well. And hopefully you'll have more Patreons uh, join in on the next one. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully the call was helpful. It was very much so. And when you say dabble, I mean, there sound like co-owners and these other things. I mean, were they like online businesses and you were trying to do it on the side? You know, maybe you're spending 10 hours a week and maybe someone might be spending 40 or more. And so that's the issue. It's like you don't feel ready to do the full commitment and that's why you would pull back. So that's right. It would usually involve several partners. There would be no one person actually doing it full time. 
you've got several people spending some time after work or on the weekends trying to get something moving and get some traction and formulating and getting a business to gel. It's very difficult to do so. Rarely hear situations where that actually results in a business you know, that sees a real genesis and growth to it. And it's tough with other people because as you just mentioned, Austin, right? If someone's working 40 hours and someone's working 10 hours, there's conflict in people's motivations, their effort, their equity in the business, the return they expect and the risk they took. So it tends to be problematic from that perspective. I would even say, even if everyone was working 10 hours, and let's just say you had two other partners, so three between y'all, you're all spending 10 hours a week on it versus like, okay, is this 10 hours really worth it when I could probably be going to my kid's soccer game and spending time with my family? It doesn't seem like, you know, if a total of three of us are working 30 hours, it's just not going to get enough momentum versus I would say if it's a side business, maybe you could do it with one partner where we both are doing it, you know, part time. But if you're doing it like one person, like if it was just you and you're doing part time, then you get, I think it's an easier transition. I'm kind of the same way where I'm like, I have to go kind of full in or I can't. Some people can kind of do part time, but doing part time with multiple partners, that seems like an issue and maybe a lesson we could learn from. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's a term which you may have heard before that gets used because this happens. There are millions of people who have full-time jobs that are not comfortable with the risk of pursuing something full-time. They call them entrepreneurs. If you're a entrepreneur, you're trying to get the reward without the risk. As a finance guy, I can say that that rarely works. So you got to take the risk to get the reward. Even like the risk of leaving your job, but it's like also the time commitment, like you have to put some time into it. Definitely. I talk about using virtual assistants and outsourcing and stuff, but honestly, if, if you're not willing to put in the hours at first, like your employees not, your virtual assistant not, you know, you have to be able to make that commitment. So it's like the financial risk, but also the time commitment to be willing to do it. That's right. You have to lead others with your commitment. Otherwise, you're only going to get at best close to the same, but probably less. Yeah. Probably like 75% at best, literally, you know, like <laughs> at best. That's right. I agree. Yeah. No matter who you hire, as much as you want them to be as committed as you, well, they don't have as much to gain, right? That's right. And they're not getting paid that upside that you are, right? Right. Or else they'd be a partner. Those 20 years kind of leading up, I mean, I'm just looking at your profile. You've worked for some big companies. I think that everyone's heard of, not just me, because I'm like, I kind of understand finance a little bit, but do you want to just walk through those quickly and tell us about those experiences there? Sure. So I went to Tufts University in Boston undergrad, and I studied actually engineering and spent three years working at GE in Western Mass, defense contractor, back when GE was in that business. And I ended up pursuing a master's at RPI part-time because GE offered to pay for it. And I discovered during these three years, as I was, again, this is the early 90s, as I was holed up in a windowless conference room doing calculus on a blackboard, because I was basically analyzing systems, that this is not the route I wanted to take. And so being the wanton perpetual student that I am, as I was finishing my master's in engineering at RPI part-time, I had started to apply to business school. So I you know, ended up going to get my MBA from Duke University. When I was leaving Duke, there was a natural path for me. So the work I did in those first three years out of undergrad and pursuing my engineering master's was really in the realm of computational physics. It's a very mathematics-oriented person. And so when I got to grad school, the master's in you know, the, the MBA from Duke, I focused in finance and that seemed to be a pretty natural fit. As I was getting out, I ended up landing a position at um, back then what was Pricewaterhouse, now is PricewaterhouseCoopers or called PwC. I ended up in what's called turnaround and restructuring consulting. 
So we would advise companies that are in distress or heading towards bankruptcy. And it was pretty exciting. There's some names which people these days may not recall. It's been a while, but some of the retailers, for example, that we worked with were like Service Merchandise, Grand Union, which is a grocery store chain. We worked with some healthcare companies that were filing Chapter 11. It was a lot of hours and a lot of travel. And I was basically able to, I'll say, survive that for two years. I mean, sometimes I wouldn't be home for 10, 11 days straight, be on the road. A very interesting work, a great, really great way to learn a lot very quickly. It's like drinking from a fire hose. So whenever you get out of school, you don't really know anything. You go to school to learn how to learn, but your job is what teaches you and gives you practical experience on how to do something or pursue a path in your career. And those two years at Price Waterhouse were, they were overwhelming and it was a lot of hours and it paid well. I really learned a ton about business in general because you think about distressed companies, right? There's not just a financial aspect to it. There's an operational aspect. There's a strategic aspect. And so you, in those roles and in that type of consulting work, you build a pretty broad business acumen, if you will. But as is not unusual, when you work like that, you can burn out pretty quickly. And I ended up hopping jobs for a couple of years for shorter stints in the finance arena, corporate finance. But that's around the dot-com boom. That's late 90s, early 2000s. And I ended up at a content, this is the right way, basically a content mirroring site. So Akamai is like a big brand and well-known company today that basically mirrors websites around the world to make the distribution of content faster on the web. And so I worked for a competitor of theirs. Are you talking to CDN? Yes, that's right. CDN, right. I know Cloudflare is the big, I think that's the one I always hear. So everyone understands there's servers all around the US. So on my website, they'll cache it. And so anyone might in Europe can see it in one second versus maybe take two and a half seconds to upload or something like that, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, Akamai is still a big company. I mean, I'm not as familiar with that sector as much these days, but Akamai was basically started by MIT grads and they split and a couple of the grad students from MIT started Akamai and the other group started at this company called Adero. Adero got 100 million from Microsoft and Intel and AOL, but burned out within a couple of years as one of the last people to close the doors. While Akamai just skyrocketed, managed very well, great, pretty ample capital funding, just grew exponentially from there. So right around the time that my time at Adero, as we were closing the doors, my then wife who had gone to medical school Tuition was funded by the Navy. It's time to sort of pay up, if you will, so to go active duty. So she was ready for deployment, and we would have had to probably move anyway. But we had our choice of places in Beaufort, South Carolina, Reykjavik, Iceland, Tokyo, or south of Tokyo, Japan. There were some other spots, but we picked Japan, so we ended up moving to Tokyo for two years. And how was that experience? Because you were from Boston, it seemed like kind of mainly. I mean, it seems like a total different experience from my eyes. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you this. I've traveled a lot of places because I love to travel. It's one of my favorite things to do. And there is no country and culture like Japan. You can look at certain continents and see similarities between neighboring countries or whatnot. But when you look at the culture of Japan, I haven't been to Korea yet. I bet Korea is a little bit similar. But for a country like Japan, the culture, it is a wonderful place, clean, efficient. It has a slightly schizophrenic aspect to it in the sense that it's a very formal society. But for those of your listeners that are familiar with anime and the various kinds, there's a lot of anime that is provocative and adult-like. They're probably on wish list. Right? <laughs> yeah. Making a little wish list on Gift Hero. Yeah. It's an interesting dichotomy between the formality of the Japanese culture and some other aspects of it. But it's just a really, really wonderful place. You know, it's some of the best two years of my life. And I worked at Morgan Stanley, the investment bank, 
in Tokyo for those two years while we were there, while she worked at the, uh, she's an OBGYN, she worked at the Naval Hospital. And so Morgan Stanley worked in an investment bank, you know, for people that have gone through that in their career, whether they stayed or not, know that it's a pretty grueling existence, not too different from my, probably a little bit, I'd say more challenging and, and time consuming than my time at Pricewaterhouse in turnaround and restructuring. But on top of everything, I had an hour 45 commute each way from where we lived. So it's kind of long days to say the least. But you working at a Western firm or company in the East, you just meet a, just a wide variety of people. You know, I made a lot of Japanese friends as well as Americans and Europeans that had moved or expats that had gone to Japan. So it was a great experience. And I recommend anybody, if you can, spend some time living outside the US at the experience. You'll never regret it. Lots to learn from it. Yeah. And you were talking about like the grueling hours and what, I mean, what do you mean by that? I mean, I've heard in like New York where they go through their office, right? And they'd, some of them literally have cots in their office to sleep there at night. Like, and you're saying an hour and 45 commute both ways. Obviously that's going to add on basically three hours each day. But I'm just curious, like if anyone doesn't know what the financial realm of lifestyle is, like what was that like, I guess over there as well? Yeah. So in investment banking in general, I actually teach a class on investment banking currently. And this is actually one of the areas I cover for people that are interested in going into iBanking. So it's a seven day a week job and you're really working at a minimum, I would say 12, probably 13 hours a day. And we're talking usually seven days a week. Sunday, you might get to squeeze in some free time and get the office for 10 hours. This tends to be a little bit more typical of those that work in investment banking that are front office working with clients and working on raising capital for clients and working in advisory for mergers and acquisitions or whatnot. My role at Morgan Stanley in Tokyo was actually on the firm management side. So for me, it was actually not as bad as folks that are working in you know, front office with the clients. And so I would, for me, probably I'm commuting three hours a day or three and a half hours a day, right? Five days a week. I usually wouldn't have to work in the weekend, but I would have a usually around probably like a 10, 11 hour day. And that's just in firm management. That's managing the firm that is not working with clients, which is the certainly the most um, grueling and onerous position to have an investment bank. It sounds like rewarding on like how much you could learn. I think you get paid very well, but... Yes, you do get paid well. Just so everyone's on the same page, like what would you say paid well would be over there? Or I guess in general. I would say if you're getting out of undergraduate and you get hired bulge bracket firm, and when we say bulge bracket, we're talking about like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, right? We're probably talking, and by the way, I'll just preface this with the comp has grown significantly over time. So hopefully my information is not too dated. But if you're getting out of undergrad, you should be looking at $80,000 base and probably a 50%, maybe 30 to 50% bonus. But that grows extremely quickly. And the reason is because there's significant churn after people are an investment bank for two years. If you make it past the two-year mark, you're going to be there, if not a lifetime, certainly a lifetime in investment banking between different banks when you get hired away. The, the, you know, you're, once you get to like the vice president level, so it goes basically associate analyst, VP, you start to get to the executive director, managing director level, you know, you should be making around a million, including bonus once you're, you're like a heavy VP heading towards the executive director side. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. Yeah, I guess it seems like the only reason 
at that point in time, like why you would want to stay, to be honest, it would seem like, because if you have a family at that point and, you know, you've got other interests, I think anyone listening now considers themselves a hard worker because they're learning about business in their free time. But when I hear that, you're just talking about seven days a week sometimes for some of these other guys. I'm like, dude, what point is it worth it? You know? Right. And look, everyone has their own perspective. I'd say for me, I'm a little bit of a workaholic. But I've got two kids and I have a, I'll call it a peripheral social life. So, and it's really hard to maintain those. I don't know how the guys, the men and women that have investment banking jobs that have families, how they do it. Well, they probably don't, honestly, because you have to make sacrifices. Absolutely. No matter what, we all have so many hours in a week. If you're the president or if you are me or if you're homeless, like we all have so many hours a week. So it's just like, yeah, how are you going to use them? And if fine, if that makes them happy, right? Then keep doing it. Part of them has to make them happy or else they would stop doing it. Right. There's obviously a personal satisfaction that is close to optimal for that person specifically. That's right. No matter what you choose to do. You're so much better with words than me. <laughs> I agree with you 100% because my thought decisions, like you can't force someone to do something like obviously they're getting satisfaction, like you said, optimal satisfaction out of doing it or else they'd stop. I mean, they could bitch and moan, but they're like, well, then leave. And they're like, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You may still be miserable, but the money's still more important as your priority. So exactly. That's why you would do it. Otherwise, you're probably insane. So <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Like, how am I going to motivate someone to start a business? Well, I really can't. That's kind of their decision, right? If like, eventually they're going to reach a threshold where they're either going to get tired of the job they're at, or they really want to go, you know, to ascertain some other goals in their life. And they're like, I need to do this financially or whatever. Like, you can't really force it. I'm just hopefully some of these stories that they're listening to opens their eyes into the opportunities of what they could do. So yeah, I appreciate you giving us some insight there, because I don't know if we've gotten that in depth in the financial world. So hopefully everyone's still awake here. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, I just think it's interesting because I feel like it's not talked about enough. Like, it's interesting hearing all these big companies and just making sure people can see behind the doors of like why these people get paid that much. It's because they're putting that many hours and they're that smart. Like, you have to go to school that long and all the burnout and whatnot. So eventually, you say 2003, 2004, you're in Japan, and then you want to come back to the U.S. If we want to kind of speed it up to Gift Hero. Sure. We ended up moving back after two years. My wife at the time had been redeployed to Bethesda Naval Hospital, so we were in D.C. So I ended up spending about eight years working in Sally May, which is the student lender, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have great affection for. <laughs> Just so everyone knows, once you take out those student loans, you can't go bankrupt on those. They stay with you. That's right. They stay with you. It's a interesting market to be in. And what was great for me personally, working there, the, the market and the product and service they offer aside, was that we did a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And I had, I'd say, the, the pleasure and the challenge of working on what at the time was the biggest leveraged buyout of all time. And that was when JP Morgan and Bank America and a private equity firm called JC Flowers went to buy Sally Mae for $25 billion. That was 2007. I was one of the first people to start working on it, being that I worked in the finance area, working with the bankers. And you know, naturally, we know what 07, 08 is when you sort of have your, your mortgage crisis and that deal blew up. But it was that was really tough. That was basically working 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. seven days a week for like eight months. As the markets dried up after Lehman fell, mortgage crisis hits. For those listeners who don't know, a leveraged buyout is basically buyers borrow as much money as possible and put as little of their own capital as possible into a deal. That's why it's called a leveraged buyout. And these guys were looking to put in about $5 billion of their own and borrow $20 billion to do a $25 billion deal. Excuse me. You can't borrow $20 billion when the <laughs> credit markets implode. And so that deal fell apart. But I mean, going through that process with them, with Sammy for eight years, buying a bunch of companies, actually two failed leveraged buyouts was you really get to understand the inner workings of what I'll refer to as financial engineering. 
at the point in time when they end up moving their headquarters to Delaware from DC, where I didn't necessarily want to move to Delaware, and I I had already started making a move back to Boston. I moved to Boston, kept working with them remotely, and then at that point in time is when I went off on my own as a consultant. Did you have any hobbies during the time other than work? So <laughs> that's a really good question. You know, my kids were pretty young. And honestly, when you work like that and you have young children, you don't really have a lot of time for hobbies. I will say one thing which will not impress anybody that I would do what little free time I had was I really enjoyed trading complex financial instruments, my own account, my own personal account. And that is the time when I became really interested in trading foreign currencies, as well as stock derivatives like options, calls, puts, iron condors, all that kind of stuff. And because I like the mathematics of it and the risk and reward, you know, I trading the Japanese yen and the euro. And I'll be honest, I was obsessive about this stuff. I found it so interesting. I mean, to the point, Austin, that on Sunday nights, I would wait for the Japanese Fed to they basically open their markets on Eastern time is uh, Sunday night, the Japanese markets. So I could hear what they had to say and then you know, try to determine what would happen with the Japanese yen after they opened their market. And Sunday night, I would be there listening to what they were saying and trying to trade against it. You know, you really, it's a lot of macroeconomics and financial markets. And being that I was involved in a lot of acquisition deals, it sounds like I'm basically doing more of the same, but it's really quite different. I haven't made much money on my stocks over time, except for two positions. One is I made a killing on the Japanese yen and I made a killing on Apple stock. Besides that, my hundreds of other positions, all losers. Incredible. I guess the Japanese yen, you were trading what you knew, right? That's exactly right. I had moved from Japan. I knew what the yen could buy when I lived there. It had reached historic strength compared to the dollar because during the March crisis, the US dollar was no, no longer the world's reserve currency. It actually became the Japanese yen. It considered it to be more conservative. And so the yen was super, super strong against the dollar and all the currencies. But the problem is Japan is an export economy. So if their currency is too strong, their products are too expensive to the rest of the world. And so they would just dilute and print money to lower the value of their currency. And so I played that, that strategy. But it was fun. I just loved, I would be reading a lot of the Forex blogs, listen to you know, the minutes and the various feds. I ended up playing with the New Zealand dollar and the Australian dollar and the Canadian dollar because those were commodities, timber and that kind of thing economies and wood, timber, lumber worth more than currencies that are based on nothing. So it's interesting to sort of build a strategy around that. So hobbies wise, that was kind of it. Maybe I'm a little bit monothematic, but uh, <laughs> I just really enjoyed it. I just found it to be fascinating. Well, and all those things you could trade after hours, not during your work hours, right? Yeah. Well, that's another good point. I mean, that's 24 seven, basically from Sunday night at uh, 6 p.m. until Friday at uh, 4 p.m. I'm full of good points. I tell my wife that every day, but she won't listen. Yeah, good job. No, no, it was always available to me. So, well, and you were pointing out too, I guess. Yeah, it just is fascinating. Like you're saying that you finally, I guess, like even the yen, I never knew about that, that that was the world's, you said, main currency during the crisis. It was considered to be the safest currency when usually it would have been the dollar, but the crisis originated in the US. And so the trust and the faith in the US dollar evaporated. Right. Because that's the only benefit, it seems like, of us printing off money like the Fed does and us having inflation to be able to export it out, if you will, to other countries. Yep. See, so I do look smarter than I thought. I studied economics. I think you're actually even smarter than you <laughs> let on to be, Austin. So I know you're managing expectations, but uh, no, you're right on point. That's exactly right.
I always lower my expectations for my wife. That's why I tell her. Like she brings out, I'm like, lower them, lower them, right. lower them. I do that for myself. Trust me. Yeah. Cause again, like, cause right when it came out, I came out of college in 2008 and I like didn't understand. I studied finance and then I was trying to understand why economies work the way they do. And I didn't really study that at UF. And I'm like, so I started in my free time just kind of for fun. It sounds kind of silly. Maybe I've never even talked about this before. It's just like, yeah, studying economics and trying to, I really became a fan of Austrian economics. Actually, when you're saying that our money's not worth anything because it's not backed by a gold standard in case anyone doesn't know. So I've always been curious how that's going to work, but I try to kind of put that behind. Like if I think about that too much, then I probably wouldn't even be doing the podcast right now. You know, right. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's right. I just keep pushing it under that rug. So that's what I tell myself at the export of like, you know, inflation and the printing off currency. I'm like, oh, we'll always be the world's number one currency. But I guess I was wrong on that. So I guess at some point it could happen. You know, during that time, that, you know, 12 to 24 month period, it was, I think that the perspective was that what's more conservative, what's safer? Because the crisis began in the US, a lot of investors ran to the yen and just to put context on it. So when I lived in Japan and it's been this way for years, $1 buys 125 yen. During the crisis, $1 only bought 75 yen, which is a huge change in the relative value of currency between two countries. Huge. 125 to 75, you know, you're seeing a strengthening of significant proportions. And that's just what markets do. They represent sentiment and psychology and belief. And that's what the belief was, is the yen is the place to go. The Japanese government will always pay their bills and there's no trust in the US government and the treasury. I do have one more question about this too, is were your eyes bloodshot 24 seven? I'm just curious, because like for me personally, I know like, I kind of get excited when I get to not look at the computer for a day, but it seems like even in your free time, you're still staring at computers, you know? Yeah, you know, I'll say one thing about me is that, especially after my kids were born and both of them were not great sleepers, they're great sleepers now, they'll sleep all day because they're teenagers. But back then I had become accustomed to not sleeping a lot. So it wasn't difficult. And it's funny, even during the attempted and failed leverage buyout of Sally Mae, when I was working from 8 a.m. to 2 a.m., seven days a week, I was still able to do some of that stuff. And it just, you know, there's an adrenaline. I'm a little bit of a workaholic, which is probably why I'm not married anymore. But to me, I don't call these good or bad qualities. It's a quality. It can be good for certain purposes. It happens to be pretty handy if you're an entrepreneur. Right. We kind of talked about it too, about people optimizing, they're going to do what they want to do. But same thing, if you think about Bill Belichick, and you're from Boston, so that makes perfect sense, right? Okay, Bill Belichick, everyone knows that he's a great coach and whatnot, but you don't really know how his personal life and everything else is. I can guarantee you it's not optimal for winning Super Bowls at home as it is as winning Super Bowls on the field, right? That's exactly right. Sally so, May, I guess you had opened up your own consulting company for a few years? That's correct. Yes, I went off. It was, I never really shut the consulting down. I definitely would take huge breaks, especially when I launched Gift Hero, because there's, even when you have built that financial safety buffer, you'll still feel that hole in your pocket from not having income. But really, you know, when I started going off my own after Sally Mae, the main kinds of clients were in financial services because I'd spent so long at, at Sally Mae and at, at Morgan Stanley. And it was still around transactions. So actually my first client, and this is not atypical for people that leave somewhere they've worked for a long time, especially that level. I was a vice president when I left. I was back at Sally Mae as a consultant on a spin-out transactions. And spin-outs are when you take a company and make it into two separate companies. And you do this because there's two natural 
offerings the company has that it can do better, more effectively and efficiently as two separate companies. And so Sally Mae spun out a company called Navient. And so they're both actually lenders now, but Sally Mae was the, at that time, the lender side that would actually make the student loans. And Navient was the company that was focused on servicing and collecting the loans. And so like that kind of transaction takes 18 months. Like I was basically back working with those guys for 18 months on, on that spin out transaction and kind of took that at the beginning of my solo consulting beginnings, you know, got a couple more clients, mainly less focused on transactions, more on what we'll call transformation projects, which is to take what they're doing. And this term transformation, which is tossed around quite a bit these days is to basically make a company more efficient and more effective. And there's different ways to do that. And so I worked on it with a couple of clients doing that. I think it was probably it was about the three-year mark consulting on my own. You know, it was tough because when you're on your own and you're trying to sell consulting work, you're going up against a lot of other consultants, small and big. When I was consulting back to Sally Mann, spinning out Navient, I mean, you know, McKinsey was there. PricewaterhouseCoopers was there, a bunch of other independent consultants were there. And those are people you run into in the market. And so when it comes to consulting, and I had one consultant I hired with me, it's really feast or famine. So, you know, when I got the spin out transaction work with Sally May, I mean, I was printing money, printing money for 18 months, making more money than I'd ever made before. And they had paid me well, even by the time I left, but I was just like, so we working a lot of hours on the spin out transaction, you know, billing at $200 an hour and working a lot of hours. And so when that came to an end, you know, mastered this war chest of getting my next gig, you know, I went and tried to pitch USA Today uh, was being spun out of Gannett. Energizer was being spun out of Gillette. I can't really remember exactly which companies they were, but they were spin out transactions were big and, you know, I was going up against other firms or whatnot. And so I couldn't get traction that way, but I went and sold it pretty hard. So I had famine for a little while. And then when I had those transformation projects I mentioned, I ended up picking up, be back to pretty solid flow of, of work and income. But you know, at some point in time, there are some people who are really good at that and will do it for a majority of their career. I'm not one of those people. I can sell certain things, but I was not great at selling that. It was tough as an individual. Yeah. Because at this point, you consider yourself an entrepreneur, right? Because you started your own consulting company. Exactly. That's right. And that's also, also where I ended up to start to dabble in some of these other startups as well. Okay. Yeah. And I can see what you're saying. It sounds like you're good at the analyzing and maybe you might've been good at selling too, but to be able to do both is really hard. Cause like, imagine that you're just trying to sell, sell, sell that all your services and then you finally get it. And then you're kind of like exhausted and you don't have time. It sounds like you said you're making a lot of money the first 18 months. Yep. Well, while you're making that money, you're servicing the clients, if you will. But eventually you're like, I don't even have time to go try to get my next job. And even if I did, I don't want to have time for it. So it's about a timing thing too. That's exactly right. That there's just, even when you see one coming to an end to make time available, like selling work is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of networking. Sometimes, honestly, the selling of the work is harder than the work itself. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And also, well, there's some people, I think what a lot of people get into is that they probably could go do both, but then they're going to do a crappy job for their client, right? It sounds like you're not one of those guys that's going to let that happen. Yeah, no, I never would. I'd probably compensate the other direction, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. Because I was exact same kind of way when I was doing real estate broker, just like same thing as I get in flows of like, hey, going to find clients and then I get all excited and then I have some clients and I'm working all that. And it's like, it's hard to have the same time to go ahead and go get new clients when I'm still trying to service the people that I'm doing. I think anyone in sales and who actually, other than just doing the selling and getting the clients, but actually has to service them, could probably relate. So I definitely understand. Because yeah, I don't know how people could do that for their whole life. I don't either. I will say during Gift Heroes, when I was trying to raise capital, you're selling constantly. But it's a little different when you're an entrepreneur, at least I think. 
So selling as a consultant on my own, sure, I'll sell my services for, for financial advisory work. But when you're an entrepreneur, it's a whole different story because that business is you. It really is you and you believe in it and you took massive risks to do it. And so you're selling constantly, but in my mind, it's a very different kind of selling. Yeah, I agree. Because I think you can see an end game too of like you getting out of that rat race of being a consultant and selling and doing the same thing over and over versus if you're going to sell Gift Hero, like that idea is like, okay, I could see where it sounds like you're never going to have this in you where you could just stop working if it did well enough, you know, but you're like, okay, like, and it's something fun because it sounds like something different finally. Right. With that, you raised money for Gift Hero or did you have enough saved up from it? Like your, I guess your other gig? Yeah, I seeded it myself. And the approach that we took is to raise money through a convertible note. For your listeners that aren't familiar with that, convertible note basically means someone's lending you money versus investing into ownership of quote unquote equity in your business. But what happens is their money with the prospect of when you raise like venture capital, they get converted to an equity investment as well based upon what money they loan to you. That's why it's called convertible debt. The benefit to them is that they get to invest at your company at a lower price than the venture capital firm. And the reason why you get that is because you took the early risk of investing the company in its, uh, its very nascent stages. So when we got Gift Hero rolling, I seeded it myself. And then with my outside counsel and my board, we basically decided we would issue what's called a rolling $1 million convertible note which means that I can go to as many angel investors as I want to and can raise different amounts of money under the same terms, obviously, up until I hit a million dollar cap. I started to raise money towards the end of 2016. So just as a little background, I think I'd mentioned that I started to come up with it in early 16. We actually got a beta release done for Christmas at the end of 16. So you know, people were working part-time and my seed money helped to pay some of the people that were building it. Then towards the end of 16 is when we, I got the approval from my board to do a convertible note and started raising money from the network of people. And frankly, I didn't hit, in fact, I have not hit a million yet. I've gotten really, really close. Like, I think we're in the, like the 950 range, but we basically ended up continuing to raise money. And I will say that's one of the challenges I had that I continued to raise capital while I tried to operate and grow the company. And that was very hard to do. And I was doing it myself. So there'd be times when I'd be worrying about, you know, my next investor presentation to get more money into the convertible note. And I'd still be trying to focus on, okay, what do our metrics look like? How are we growing? How's the money being spent? Because I was being all the CFO roles as well as a finance person. So it was tough, but that's how we got our like, almost million dollars is through a convertible note. So I guess it, the same thing kind of was happening that was happening with the consulting gig of, you said again, I guess you just raising money and kind of doing two jobs. It sounds like you're good at trying to do two jobs. That's exactly the same thing, Austin. You've nailed it. Yeah, that's exactly the same thing. And so you said you had to seed it. Like how much money did you have yourself before going to get that 1 million convertible? I ended up putting in 100,000 and then I put in, you know, in 16 when we were trying to build a beta. And then I put another 100,000 in early 17. You know, just some other background, our full public release of Gift Her was really the summer of 17. We had our beta come out late 16. And so we were making changes after the beta release. And so our full release 17. So by the time we did a full public release, I had put in that 200 grand, 100 in late 16, 100 in early 17. And I had started to raise by that point in time, I got another 200 grand through the convertible note from some angel investors. As you're doing Gift Hero, it sounds like you have the consulting gig on the side, but you're really not doing it. You're just kind of doing the Gift Hero thing. Yeah. What did this grow to? I guess, could you take us through over the last couple of years of what it's turned into? 
Yeah, sure. Since we went for our full first public release in middle of 2017, you know, I was looking to try and like get 3,000 users signed up, registered users by the end of the year. And, you know, the users based upon like some market research we had done. I had, by the way, five people working with me at this point, a marketing person and three dev people and actually like a half marketing person, half admin. And we were, I was targeting 3,000 people. That's kind of like what it seemed like it would, we could get to. And we ended up with 17,000 users at the end of 2017. It was basically six times what I expected. So we had this first six months that was just kind of mind blowing. And as we got into 2018, we continued to add users. But what was interesting is that I was able to spend less money on marketing. And that's a big part of social media is your growth in users and how do you acquire them, right? And it's really what's organic and what do you pay for? Through like a Google AdWords or social media marketing. I spent less money and we're also capital constrained, right? Because the money came in over the years. I spent less money, but we ended 2018 at 46,000 people. So we had what's basically a two and a half two and three quarters times growth year over year. When we got into 2019, we were very capital constrained and spent very little. We still had 75,000 registered users at the end of 2019. There's a sort of the marketing spend became much more efficient and the organic growth took up, just really accelerated, right? The organic piece of it. So hopefully, was that helpful? Yeah, this is great. This has been super helpful. This is good feedback. I love the idea of just making it clear what we do, how we do it, and then putting some customer bio information of who we've signed up. Speaking of signing up, why don't you sign up to become a Patreon member today? Go ahead, pause this episode right now, and go sign up. It'll be the best decision you've made since pressing play on this episode. Did you not want to put in any more money at this point? Like you personally? Yes, I did not. Okay, because it seemed like just based on your financial success that you would still have some reserves that I'm like, okay, after you saw that first growth, you're like, hey, maybe you'd want to put money in, but maybe, you know, his wife took it all. And right. I don't know what happened. Right. So there was a variety of things that happened during that time that made it harder to do that. But also, you know, my perspective is... Well, you had partners too. <laughs> so that makes it harder. Yeah. And the thing is like, if you can try to use either naturally created capital, which is hard to do, obviously, can be profitable from day one, but you also want to use as much as of investors capital versus your own. And I definitely invested that 200 grand, but I also was funding a lot of expenses out of pocket and being reimbursed when revenue started to come in. And so there was a, like this temporary funding aspect that I would do for the working capital side, you know, funding expenses and being paid back while I was raising capital through the convertible note. But I think that there's an aspect to this from an investment theory and strategy standpoint, where if you're dumping all of your own money into it, you've got to have limits. You have self-imposed limits. It'll just drag on. You'll burn more money. And next thing you know, you'll have a non-sustainable business that took all of your money. It's a slippery slope and it's a slow bleed. It's a death by a thousand cuts. And so I told myself, I'll do temporary funding right? Which I'll be paid back for, but formal investment, I'll cap it at that, that 200,000. And I think that at the end of the day, my sort of mental guideposts were that if I can't get it launched this way, then there's something wrong here inherently. Right. Because even though you're talking about your customers growing and whatnot, it sounded like you weren't making a profit, I guess, yet at that point. Correct. Okay. Correct. We were just trying to get as many users on as possible. And so really at the end of the day, if I can't get other investors interested to put money in. 
and I'm putting money in, is it a smart investment, right? Just, that tells you something. Like, you know, not, not saying cut and run, but you don't want to just have a faucet that you turn on and off with your own capital. You want to leverage other people's capital. And so you have to consider that if the investment, the external investment slows down, there's a reason for that. That makes sense. No, I mean, makes perfect sense. I guess I didn't know, because that's the thing. I interview all different types of entrepreneurs. So if the capital constraint was, for instance, to like, you needed to make more widgets and you already had the sales orders ready to go, then that's risk reward. That's easy money for you to put in your right? versus this, even though you're talking about growth and we're growing in customers, like technology can change and it's not growing enough where it sounds like you're profitable, I guess, at that point. So that's the main issue. If you're making a lot of profit, then maybe it makes sense. Oh, yeah. Right. That's right. Well, there's always some uncertainty, right? And there's always a risk. And you, it's like anything else, Austin, you have to set limits because, you know, you're biased. I mean, this is, you know, I wanted this thing to flourish. And even when I was spending money to fund expenses, just in the meantime, until revenue was collected and I could pay myself back. But even then I was like, this shouldn't really be this way, but I can do this temporarily to sustain some growth. And so I did. But with the, I'll also say at the same time, one of my failures is that I didn't spend in a lean and fiscally responsible manner as much as I should have. And it's coming from a finance guy. You know, that's definitely it was spent inefficiently towards the beginning. And there's some pretty big lessons I took from that. So, yeah. Well, then what are those lessons? Like, what did you spend on that? Hopefully we can learn on and maybe we wouldn't spend on on our business. Sure. So my viewpoint on capital, well, actually, I'll step even further back to the risk reward sort of trade off. So some of the startups I mentioned earlier that I had been involved with before I started Gift Hero full-time, there was not enough courage in the people involved to not only commit their time, but their money, okay? So I kind of, I think when I started Gift Hero, I kind of went the other way, which was, well, I'm going to get the capital. I believe in this. I vetted this, this concept, you know, this business model. And so I'm going to spend, especially in areas that I'm not familiar with. So as you know, my background's in finance. I'm running a social media platform. And so I don't know marketing. I don't know the tech development. I don't know product management very well, right? I'm more of a pure finance person. So I brought in experts and some of those experts were too expensive. They were not the right people for what I needed at that time. And I remember thinking to myself, I should have really operated this in a more lean manner and maybe shouldn't have swung for the fences. Maybe I should have spent more time at the beginning being more careful. But I just went and got the marketing folks and to sort of figure out how to do this and how to get this up and running. And it turned out that the marketing person I ended up with was better suited for what I needed versus the one I initially started with. The second person was more focused on what this platform would need, the specific area of marketing, digital marketing, versus a, someone that was, had a broader but a very experienced background in marketing and cost me a lot less than where I'd spent at first. So I think like I look back upon that and that may have been no way I could have known because it was an area that I didn't know, but I always bear responsibility for those things. So I wish there was a way that I could have sort of had a better or a clearer view of what I was spending on and what the return would be. And really like I've gotten to this point where I really evaluate developing a business on a return on investment basis. So as opposed to a startup where you dump money into, or you might dump money in to get it going, right? You might cost a lot of, burn a lot of cash, but there's a high prospects. I think that I heard this from a couple other entrepreneurs along the way. They refer to it as the lean startup. I believe there's a book named that. And try to be mindful of how you spend, which is, you know, it's just not, there's nothing new in that statement, but to approach it in a way that is a little bit more focused on where that money goes, even in areas that you don't know, just take more time. The only problem is that, especially in tech startups, 
you always feel the pressure of time and competitive offerings. And so you don't want to necessarily wait, but you know, you kind of have to fight that battle. I also rushed out my beta version for the for Christmas 2017. That cost me more money than it would have if I'd taken longer to develop a beta version for the following year. And so both of those were really throwing money at a fast and execution of the of a beta product. So I guess up till today, I mean, is it profitable today? And is this what you do full-time? So it's going to break even this year. You know, we're, I think we end up doing about two and a half million in gift volume which isn't a lot of money. It's only, like, it's only like 80 grand or 90 grand in revenue to us. It's about, you know, we're running about 4% affiliate revenue on volume. This year, we're growing 75% over last year. And which is great growth. It's not enough growth for VC would want to see like three to four times growth at least, right? But for a startup that is sustainable, burns very little cash now, 75% year over year growth in revenue is pretty good. Yeah, because you can merge with another company too. They get bought out, whatnot. I mean, that's probably the best aspect of this. And I guess maybe this is one of those things where it seems maybe this business would benefit from COVID. I don't know. Maybe I'm making that up. But I mean, if you had to stay home and you know make these gift things, I don't know if that helped. Yeah, I think that certainly is a benefit. Anything that's digital commerce related at this point is going to fit, you know, versus uh, anything with a brick and mortar or uh, or four walls, right, for people to to spend their money. Yeah, because we don't have a choice. <laughs> so. That's exactly right. So I still, I run it, so at this point I run it part-time because I'm actually back in the turnaround and restructuring consulting area, working with distressed clients, which there are many <laughs> these days, unfortunately. But the key to Gift Hero is that I've got 75% growth and I'm spending very little money. You know, I had my failures from the perspective. And very little time. And very little time, yes. You know, because like, you know, my failures are around recognizing what investors, like larger sophisticated investors would want that I could not offer. And so I failed to recognize and to make that happen. I certainly failed around certain other aspects of how I spent some of that capital, but I have the benefit of succeeding of creating something that is basically self-sustaining and propagating and probably can be sold, I'd say probably 2023 is my expectation to someone. Well, like, congratulations, I guess, kind of taking the side business, you know, building it seems like, I mean, it took three or four years, I guess, but I mean, that's capable. Like, that's what we hear of, like a lot of businesses. It's not overnight that you're going to be able to make a business and sell it. So, and then I guess kind of step back and kind of get back into what you're doing too. So, I mean, it seems like it all kind of worked out in the end here. Yeah, it has gone well, you know, from that perspective. I think it'd be a little bit tougher to even talk about if it had just gone down the tubes, right? But I have the benefit of a business that has natural organic growth. If you think about it, if someone builds a wish list, they want people to see it. So they sell it for me. I, don't, I just need users. They, they sell it to their friends and family who will jump on and follow. So there's an aspect of this, this business model where I get to have growth that doesn't cost me much. Like it grows naturally. And so that is the success in this business is that it can run forever. And, and I never gave away equity except to my staff and to some of the investors that came through the convertible note eventually. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your story here. I mean, I don't know if there's any other last words of wisdom you had for anyone here who's listening. Yeah, there's actually two things. I've done some advising some startups along the way, and I've actually, actually used this in my work. Uh, one is that manage to one metric. It's one of the biggest lessons I learned. When you have a startup or some kind of entrepreneurial endeavor, there's so much decision-making, so much chaos running in every direction. Pick one metric that's most important for the growth of your business and go with it. For us, it was just users. I got distracted by revenue and trying to hit a profit and number of wish lists built or whatnot. And I finally figured out, I read this in a blog post on Medium back in 2016, pick one metric that way that'll inform all of your decisions and makes it much more efficient and effective. That worked very well for me, excuse me. It works for some of my consulting clients now too. 
So managing to one metric, I think is, I love the simplicity and elegance of that kind of approach. The other thing that I tell everybody, because I've advised a whole bunch of startups since then in their early stages, is that greed will kill a business almost every single time. And so many startups that I've worked with before that I was part of before I started Gitero and one I've advised after when they didn't build their corporate structure and have agreement up front, and then they started fighting for equity or who gets credit for what, responsible for this, et cetera, with partners, it killed probably six different startups I was involved with or advised. It's you need to reward people, be fair with it. You know what? You can own 90% of a business that never goes anywhere, right? And worth zero or own 10% of a business that's worth a billion dollars. Which one's better? Obviously the latter. And you'll earn people's loyalty. You'll learn their effort and their motivation if you distribute equity in a way that is fair and generous. I always tell people like, make sure you've nailed it down up front. Everyone knows what their involvement is and what their equity is and be generous with it. It'll pay you dividends. I guess like adding on to that last point is it's like everyone's selfish to a point, but you have to step back and put yourself in their shoes, like somebody else's shoes. Like, you know, you're obviously thinking about yourself if you're going to be whining about the equity, but, you know, maybe you have valid points or whatnot, but you don't know what's going on with the other person too. And you have to put yourself in their shoes to have that perspective. So thank you for bringing that up and alluding to, I guess, when you had those four or five, six, whatever different, I guess, little startups, those are, it seems like were the main issues that stopped it. So hopefully we've learned from that. In every single case, that's for sure. Yeah. And if someone would say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? If they'd like to, they can email me at founder at gifthero.com. All right. Check out Gift Hero and thanks again for joining us. Yep. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the end here. So this is a basically a quick preview of a coaching call, my first coaching call with Eric Gilbert Williams, where again, we're going to talk about the podcast and the financials. So if you want the rest of it, it's actually already available for all Patreon members. So just check your Patreon feed and you have access to the rest of this interview. So hope you enjoy this quick preview of my first coaching call with Eric. What I was thinking, you remember if I told you before, I could send this out as a Patreon special and yeah. so people get an example of how you could help them too. So hopefully it helps them about that end as well. Sure. Yeah. I think we're recording right now. So okay. I think we're live and happening. So yeah, it's just so 8 p.m. your time? It is 8 p.m. my time. Luckily, I don't have kids or anything, so I can kind of do a similar schedule if I want to. Yeah. Basically, my only baby is the podcast, really. Yeah, and nothing's more exciting than taking a baby that you created, like your podcast, and turning it into a profitable machine that can support you for a long time. What a good lead intro here, huh? <laughs> Wasn't bad, eh? <laughs> yeah, there you go. I guess with that said, do you want to jump into what you would normally, because we did a quick pre-interview call just so everyone's on the same line to understand, and this is our first kind of real call, and I guess you're trying to help me, and this is what you do with other businesses. Do you want to just run down what you normally do on this first call so I guess people can get an example, and then hopefully it can help me specifically try to make this more profitable for me so I can keep doing it? For sure. The first call, first let me, let me just say that in the typical business coaching world and business entrepreneurship or advising world, um, there's a lot of people out there that have systems and cookie cutter processes and sort of one size fits all sort of like going to school and go through my program. And I'm really just not that kind of person. And I'm not going to speak uh, positively or negatively about how other people roll. I just do it a little different. So this first call and every call starts and finishes the exact same way. You tell me what's going on. Tell me what the priorities are. What the hell's happening right now that we need to focus on? And we're going to tackle that problem as if we were partners and as if this company was my own as well end with some actionable results that can be monitored and measured between now and the time of our next call. 
And between now and the time of our next call, uh, we'll keep in touch through direct message. And if you need to have another quick little 15 minute chat at some point, then we do that too. So really, let's just dive right in, figure out what's happening and together some actionable steps. Yeah, no, that sounds perfect because I agree with you. I've never really had a coach. I've done a couple of masterminds and whatnot. And I mean, I've had someone that I paid to try to help me about a year ago with the podcast. And I'm not sure it was everything that I was hoping for. Because right. I guess I found out at the end of the day, it's trying to figure out if someone's helping you, whether they're a coach or like a consultant that you're actually paying to fix it. But you're going to try to help me figure out what I need to do. And then whoever's coaching you, it's on the person that you're coaching to actually get the job done versus someone actually doing the work for you where you pay a lot more. And you're just doing this because. You want to help other entrepreneurs make their stuff more profitable and just my podcast because making a podcast is very difficult to make profitable. So the way I make money right now is really 95% of it's through sponsorships and like 5% through Patreon. And those are kind of really my own two streams right now. So my idea is just trying to, and I'm, if you ask me, you can just ask me whatever questions you want and I can tell you where I am financially with it. And hopefully, you know, I try to be very reasonable and set up expectations that I hate projecting things out in a best case scenario. I almost try to work at, look at worst case scenario. So right. really, I guess trying to either make money doing this different ways to try to help people. And it's really my main thing. I don't care if it's different type of revenue streams or any way that you can give me some ideas on how to make it more profitable overall. Yeah, well, most people are, are, well, let me rephrase this. Ideas are great. Actionable items and, and finishing something is more important, though. How many great ideas come up every day that don't actually go anywhere? So, if you want access to it and other exclusive interviews, and you're not a Patreon member, then go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. It's tough, isn't it? But that's to a podcast that goes to like 30,000 people. So it's just like, there's so many people who listen and don't do anything. You know what I'm saying? I want to give you credit for what you're doing because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening, but I was curious how many people are paying. I mean, for me, my dad even said, Bren, why are you paying this guy? What, what's he giving? I said, it's, I want him to keep going. That's why I'm paying, you know, and I do believe in pay it forward. It's not a lot of money and you know, I can do the math.